being a troublemaker, that's it. <laughs> Let us pray. O oh God, who in creating human nature has wonderfully dignified it and still more wonderfully reformed it, grant that we may, be, that we may become partakers of his divine nature, who deigned to partake of our human nature, thy Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, throughout all ages of ages. Amen. Amen. I'm going to start with a quote from one of my favorite Orthodox writers, Herathius Vlachos, who's a metropolitan in Greece, somewhere in Greece, I believe. He's written a number of books. I've referenced them before. But he says this, many people, because of various unstable circumstances in their lives, are tormented by states of guilt, which inevitably lead to existential suffering, depression, and despair. The church, however, offers us consolation by showing us ways to escape from disillusionment, the devil's strongest weapon for man's destruction. In some of the past lessons, we, we Father Mark talked about spiritual despondency. Uh, and the last time I mentioned, in the last class last week, or a couple of weeks ago, something that I call uh, spiritual PTSD. Uh, and that there's always something from the fall, from before the fall, that's left over, that's nagging at us, uh, telling us that things are either that things are wrong, something's wrong, and we can't identify it, uh, or that there's more than what we're getting in life and what we're finding in life. Uh, either of those are forms of that, uh, and we all experience them in some way. Have you ever? had one of those experiences when you come to church and you feel like you're on the verge of breaking into eternity and, and it sort of fades back. Uh, I felt Sometimes I felt like God is so close. Something where I'm going to experience is so close and yet I felt like I found myself so far away. Well, one of the things I want to do today is talk about an aspect of our existence in our, in our journeys uh, that addresses this in a way. When we begin to learn this, we begin to even unconsciously address the, that sense of nagging. And I'm going to start with the, with the word, and I've mentioned this before, it's a quality of the Orthodox Christian spirituality. It's called antinomic or anti, antinomy. Uh, I'm going to, let, me, let me put it on the board so that you don't mistake it, because Grace told me I, I mentioned this word at a, at a wedding sermon once, and she said, you sound like you're saying... Uh, anthrop anthropic or some such thing, and they're going to misunderstand and think you don't know how to say the word correctly. Well, I probably don't know how to say the word correctly, but that's not the point. Uh, so anyway, plus I have to write it, and you know my handwriting is not. Uh, uh, see, I can't even spell it. I can't even spell it right. By the time we get done, it'll be four hours from now, and... Uh, Antinomy is the noun form, and antinomic is the adjective form. So the faith is antinomic, that is, what we learn about ourselves in every aspect of the faith uh, <coughs> is itself antinomic, referring to the concept of antinomy. The word itself comes from Greek. And it really is two words put together, anti and nomos, which would basically mean uh, opposing or seemingly conflicting laws. So for something to be antinomic, I like to define it, and this is my definition, so you can take this for what it's worth, but that it's two seeming, seeming opposites held in tension. 
uh, and, and we don't think about this, but the faith is like this. Two seeming opposites. So there, see, there, I say seeming because they're two opposites, but they're not, they're not opposites. Because we perceive reality incorrectly. So they seem to be opposite to us, but they're two sides of the same thing. And they're held in tension. So it's not like they blend together into one, but they are, they are blending together. But at the same time, they maintain their significance. They're all like the two natures of Christ or the three persons of the Trinity. Uh, they're undivided, unconfused. So every, virtually everything in the Christian life is understood antinomically, including ourselves. Uh, and we have to begin to think antinomically, and we don't. As fallen human beings, as we'll see in a minute, we think uh, otherwise, one or the other. That's what gets us into trouble. So reality is antinomic. Discipleship is antinomic. And I'm going to start with something today. It was ringing out in your sermon. I was thinking about this, and I got distracted. The, the devil distracts me by making me think too much. Uh, but, but anyway, there's an aspect that I like to talk about, and I use, this is my terminology, but for us, Christian discipleship is attitudes and actions. So I use those words because, because they, they're words that we can grasp, and, it, and they're catchy because they both start with A. Attitudes and actions. In, in, in the, theological language, it would probably be theology and praxis. But we, so attitudes and actions. Keep it that way. It keeps it on our level. Uh, so attitudes and actions. I mean, in other words, we need to have the proper perspectives on life, our attitudes, and our understandings of reality, and we know how. We need to be able to know how to respond to them correctly and properly. So we can't just do whatever we want. Uh, we have to know what God wants and to begin to respond that way. And those may seem like two opposites, especially when our mind tells us we should do one thing, and and the moral values we're given tell us seemingly something else. They go together. So I want to read you just briefly a, a very short quote from the Snakebite Letters. And by the way, Father Marcus urged me to work on a series of lessons for you from the Snakebite Letters, and I, I love to talk about this kind of stuff. So anyway, uh, the, the, remember the Snakebite Letters is, is, a, is a book about, it's a, a What's, I'm in a lack of words, senior moment here. I can't think of the word. Anyway, it's, it, the scenario is a senior demon training younger demons and telling them how to make Christians fall into sin. Uh, and, and he says, before they sin, make them think only of the enemy's mercy. The enemy is God. After they sin, make them think of the enemy's mercy, not his justice. After they sin, make them think only of his justice, not his mercy. You see the antinomy? God is justice and he is mercy. There's the antinomic truth. And the devil tries to make us think of one side at the expense of the other. And here's the problem, is that that one side that remains is true. That's what makes it so deceptive. But it must have the opposite side to really be true. And insofar as one side is presented as truth, it's totally wrong. So the right thing can be the wrong thing. So attitudes and actions. We ought to think right, okay? So we get all the theology right, but our actions are doing something else. So, or the other one is we think that the Christian faith is all about what we do, not about having the right roadmap to eternity. We priests, this, 
This is one for us in, def in defense and also a condemnation of us. Statistics show, suggest that the majority of priests uh, are attitude people. And so our propensity is to tell you what to think and, how, and, 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 go, and for along those lines. And the majority of the people in the pews tend to be action people. So what they want to tell me what to do. Well, it's both of those. And notice the church calendar. It rotates us constantly through a series of events. This is what happened, and this is what we believe, and this is what is true. A attitudes and what flows out of that are actions. Our actions. Those are supposed to affect us and what we believe and say. So if so if if we have say that the attitude is Christ is God incarnate, that changes everything he says from being just morals or, or virtuous ideas to God telling us what we have to do about this mess we find ourselves in. It's both. And if we don't believe that Christ is God, then most of what he said, I would say to you this, and I've said this before, I think, most of what Christ said is not, was not new morally. You can find it in secular literature that predated his time and even postdated him. You can find it. So he didn't really say anything. What really was unique was what he said about himself. That's really what's unique. And that changes everything. So, so when the rabbi Hillel said, the law is... Love your neighbor as yourself, the rest is commentary. What does that sound like? <laughs> the summary of the law. Okay? But the difference is Hillel never presented himself as being God incarnate. <laughs> he was just a great rabbi. But Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You see, that changes everything. And suddenly the statement has a new meaning because of from, the, from whence it came. The attitudes and the actions. Antonomic truth. It is the truth of what we need to learn. And, and I would say, and I say, I say this guardedly, everything is antinomic. I say that guardedly because the minute I tell you that, you'll find something that isn't. And then I'll be proven the liar, so forgive me. Let me give you some examples of this. Listen to the Christian faith and aspects of it. What do we say about God? He is unity and trinity. That's an antinomic truth. Can't have one or the other. If we overemphasize the unity, we get modalism, Sabellianism, uh, Islam, Judaism. If we emphasize the three, we get tritheism, which is another form of pantheism. Or they're not God. And so they're just attributes. Some people try to think that you have to have one and three, language of one and three. So it can be three of anything. And they make the mistake then of talking about the attributes of God, which are not the same as the persons of God. Now I'm getting into attitude. The picture that just went out on me. Uh, God is unity and trinity. When we talk about God in the church, we talk about him as, as cataphatic. That is, what do we say about God? God is love. God is compassion. God is merciful. God is justice. God is trinity. And we also have apophatic, that we understand when we say those things, those are words that capture concepts of God, but he in his being transcends it. And so the words don't really do them justice for what he is. Everything we say about God is like this. So apophatic, cataphatic, and apophatic. God is judgment. God is merciful. So when we think, you know, I, for me, early on my Christian journey, uh, I, I was in the mode, God was justice. 
and he was going to get me if I didn't live up to moral principles a certain, to a certain level of success. And, and, and I, the harder I tried, the worse I got, I think. Uh, and I was in terrible shape emotionally uh, because of this. God is just as well. He's going to get me. I could, I could just see the hand coming down and squashing me like a fly on the counter. You know, just, I've had enough of you, Rooney. You're finished, you know. And then a kind priest came along and said, God is merciful and loving, and he loves you just as you are. So I swung to the opposite extreme. Oh, I can do whatever I want because God is merciful and loves me. It took coming into orthodoxy for me to realize both of those are true. So, so I was on the right track in the beginning, just didn't have the whole picture, didn't have the antinomic picture. So God is judgment and mercy. What about Christ? He's God and man, truly God and truly man, not sinful humanity, but original humanity. He is like us in every way, yet without sin, but he's also God. We've got to have both of them together, antinomic. What about time? We've talked about this in here. Time is eternal. Time is chronological. It is both. Real time is chronological and eternal. Just because we don't experience the eternal quality doesn't mean it's not real. That means there's a defect in us. What about reality? Reality is immaterial and material. See, we only understand the material aspect, but there was a time when our ancestors understood the immaterial aspect of reality. You wonder why something's nagging at us? You see, something's nagging. There, there's more, and I sense it in my DNA. So we make religion, and we figure it out on our own, which is nothing more than a construct of our own imaginations and not reality at all. What about us? We are material and immaterial. Our souls are proof of it. When we talk about people dying, we're burying their bodies and their souls are living on. Those <laughs> are material and immaterial reality. We claim it. I mean, we sort of sense it, but we don't define it because we want to think everything's material. We don't want to know the truth. What about sin? It's thoughts. According to Jesus, sin is thoughts and actions. We think sin is actions, evil actions. But some of our best intentions can be evil or sinful or hurtful or whatever. So sin is thoughts and actions. Jesus said if you lust in your if you even think about lusting in your heart, you've done it. So not we if it's not just the action, it's the thought that goes with it. Uh, and sin is against God, but it's also against all of creation. Because we represent, each one of us represents all of creation from all of time, for all of time. And when we sin, we sin against that scenario. So your sin, my sin is against all of creation. It's also against God. So we want to think about it, it's against God, but not anybody else, it's just between God and me. Well, wrong. That's why we say, I confess to God Almighty, to blessed Mary, and blessed Michael, the archangel, blessed all the saints, and to you, brethren, that I have sinned exceedingly. It's against everybody and everything. That's antinomic. What about prayer? Prayer is individual, but it's also corporate. Some of us think, all I have to do is pray privately, and I don't need this church business. And some of us think, I'd rather do the church business because I don't want to take time to learn how to pray privately. But it's really both. We need to learn both. And actually, they feed on each other. What happens in our private prayer time feeds how the way, what we do in there, and vice versa. A lot of my private prayers are what I've learned in church. 
So the church, the corporate setting taught me to pray. What about faith? This is where a number of American Protestant brethren misunderstand us. Because for us, faith is belief and actions, attitudes and actions, belief and acts. So when we say, when we respond to, I'm saved by faith alone, we would say, well, yeah, belief and actions. You heard a Protestant minister say Orthodox are a cult because they believe in salvation by faith and works. So I did some reading and I found out that some of the some of the catechisms of orthodoxy, which emanate out of Eastern Europe, where they don't have any baggage with this kind of language, faith and works, like people do in America, American Protestantism, they don't think there's a contradiction between the words faith and works. They're two sides of the same thing. Just like St. James said in his epistle, and by the way, St. Paul said the same thing in Romans, which is ironic since that's the book that's used to refute the theology that St. James uses. But if you look at it carefully, he says the exact same thing. I've done an analysis of their concepts, and although they changed the wording, you can duplicate about 15 of the concepts in the Epistle of James and the Epistles of Paul to the Romans. They don't contradict each other at all. One is more, a little bit more verbose about it, but St. Paul, he talked too much, but that's not. <laughs> anyway, ecclesiology, the church is heaven and earth, those who have gone before us and those who are on earth. So whenever we get together, we're in that context. Therefore, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we laud and glorify thy name. Why do you think we're saying that? Of words? They don't mean anything? It's true. God wants us to see this. I think it's amazing that what happens at the beginning of the Mass, the first part, start with the Sirsum Corda, and you have a vision of God the Father. We were emulating what Isaiah saw. And then we have the, the institution, what Christ did when they began to see. Remember when the apostles in Luke's gospel, in the Luke's, St. Luke's gospel, some of the disciples were with Christ, and they did not recognize him until he began the Eucharistic celebration. They saw him in that. And the third one is the epiclesis, the invoking of the Holy Spirit upon the elements to make them the bread and, the body, the bread and wine to become the body and blood of Christ. The three persons of the Trinity manifested in those three actions which are given to us. Wow, take that language away, you take that concept away. And then what have we got? So it's heaven and earth. The church is hierarchical and egalitarian. We have bishops and we have priests and we have deacons and we have various levels of, or, of lay ordination, some levels of lay ordination. Uh, we have hierarchy and we obey the hierarchy and we honor the hierarchy. That does not make them any better than we are. In fact, the great saints of the church have said, I'm, wor I'm the worst of all. I love that my favorite story is the monk who, who was filled with humility. <coughs> and a demon came to him one night in his prayers and said, I'm here and I'm come to, I'm, I've come to take you with me because you're a sinner. And the monk said, yeah, you're right, I'm the worst of all. And when the monk heard that, when the demon heard that, he, was, he couldn't take the man because he couldn't deal with the act, the, the the quality of humility which this monk displayed. I'm the worst of all. How many of us would really say that about ourselves? Well, I know of 15 of you that are far worse than I am. <laughs> You're laughing because you've done it. <laughs> I pride myself in my humility. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Or what about this aspect of antinomic truth? The church is patriarchal in that it has only male clergy. 
And yet, the model of discipleship is a woman. Notice how many churches that have introduced female clergy, churches in America, they've introduced female clergy, have abandoned the mother of God as the example of what discipleship is. The irony of that is striking to me. Striking. Keep those things together, and we stay together. Marriage. Marriage, in spite of what our society says, is male and female. It's antinomic. And there's, believe me, there's nothing more antinomic than a man and a woman <laughs> in marriage. Yeah. You know, you, and then add to that personalities, differences in personalities. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. And, and that makes it even more so, you know. So in, in, the, in the Myers-Briggs type indicator, it says the, the, the thinking function versus the feeling function, or the thinking, the objective personality versus the subjective personality. And it says, if you're right down the middle of the line, the, the male is the thinking, the objective, and the female is the subjective. If you're right down the line. So even a secular concept recognizes that there are, there are inherent differences in us, and the two make the whole. This is why the church cannot abandon this, and won't. I think it's one of the glories of orthodoxy that we, we the church is not going to let this go. So... Thank God. I don't know about you, but I've been where it has been let go. And it didn't do me any good. Discipleship. Again, God's action, our response. God acts, we respond. What do we do about this? All this stuff we're being told. The nativity. God comes to us in human flesh. What are we, are we oh, that's, that's cute. Let me get home to my Christmas presents. Uh, or do we, do we do something with that? We, we, the idea is to tell us that so that we can respond to it pro appropriately. Respond to what happens up there at the altar when the threefold nature of God manifests itself in the actions that we do. How do we respond? Well, God's action, our response. Reality is antinomic. And the fall... The fall of man emphasizes one side at the expense of the, uh, of the other, as I've already mentioned, and leaves us with a void. And we wonder why life is so unfulfilled. Now, I want to do something here uh, that's, and there's a reason for this. So when you think I've lost my mind, you'll understand why. Uh, I want to refer just very, very briefly to something from the secular counseling realm called the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator. Uh, if you know anything about this, I'm not going to do it justice. And I'm not really concerned with doing it justice. I'm concerned with something else that I've discovered from it. And that is this. Let me, let me, just, let me just write these out. Myers and Briggs were two. It was a woman, actually, and I think it was her mother or her mother-in-law, uh, <clears throat> who did some studies on Carl Jung's philosophies of, of human nature. And they came up with this concept, and there are a lot of scholars today who are challenging this. I'm not concerned with all that stuff. I just want to show you something here. Anyway, they broke personalities into four basic structures, which multiplied 16 personalities, but four. One was extrovert versus introvert. And by extrovert, it doesn't mean you, you, you and I think an extrovert is a person who talks too much. And an introvert is a person who doesn't talk much. But the actual, actually, that's only one small quality of this. It's actually the extrovert gets, it gets energy from being in social groups. 
And the introvert gets energy from being alone. He's an extrovert. <laughs> I'm an introvert. So we can't get along. I thought you should know that. <laughs> so the second one is sensing. And those are the parts I just want you to grasp, just for the purpose of what we're doing here. Sensing versus intuitive. And they usually let call this one N, okay? So that's I, uh, U-I-T-I. What this means is the sensing person is oriented toward details. So give me the details. And they see everything in terms of the details. A sensing person could scan this room and recognize all of your faces and, and, be, and all kinds of data is coming forward. An intuitive person has the ideas. I see a room of people. It's hard for me to get that focused. So this is this details, and, uh, ideas. You want to you do a project, you get an intuitive person to come up with the ideas and a sensing person to come up with how to do it. Third category is think, what's called thinking. And this means basically objective, someone who's objective, versus feeling. And that's subjective. One's not better than the other. They're just different. So some of us are very objective. You can tell. They're called T's or F's. You can always tell T's. They have this sort of cold look in their eyes, you know, especially if they're introverts. But it's not that they're cold. It's not that they don't feel. It's just that they are very objective in their approach to things. Uh, and some of us are feeling people are usually warm and gushy, you know, and just... Oh, we're so easy to kill. Yeah, there, there he is. There he is. Warm and gushy. <laughs> well, guess what? I'm a feeler too, believe it or not. But I'll tell you, I learned something in life. Well, I'll come back to it. I'll come back to it. Being a priest, this helps, but you better learn to do this too. There are times when one has to shut down his feelings and say no. And then you can be crucified. I was in a parish where they tried to crucify me. Father Patrick McCauley had somebody, when we were still Episcopalians, who the founding priest of this church, who had somebody who tried to undermine his authority, and he took objective action, and he needed to. He needed to. No one asked him how he felt about it. No one asked me how I felt about it. It didn't matter. And the other one is judging... We so misunderstand language and perception. Now, judging means bringing something to conclusion, concluding it, closing it. If you're a person who gets started on a task and wants and can't rest until you've completed it, you're probably a judging personality. Perceptive people are spontaneous. So if you ever had a guy in your neighborhood who's, who's constantly starting tasks and he brings all these tools out to the yard, and he starts to paint the front of the house, and then he, he gets bored with it, and he climbs down from the ladder. You're, you're laughing. Do you know somebody like that? Or maybe you? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he gets, climbs down from the ladder, and he leaves everything there, and he wanders off and doesn't come back for months to do the job. That's a perceptive personality. We, we're great. We're, we're real flexible. I'm a perceptive, by the way. <laughs> we're real flexible. Real flexible. We, we're so spontaneous. We're good people to have around when a crisis because we know how to respond to things that we never expected. But we can't get anything done. 
And these people get everything done almost obsessively, compulsively. So, what I, I was really blessed that when I learned this, I learned it from the, from the mouth of a veteran priest who said, Myers-Briggs, you say, say, you learn what you are. So I'm an INFP. You learn what you are, and you learn to live with it. And this priest said, no. You learn what the whole thing is, and you identify where you are as a starting point to understanding that one has to learn the opposite in order to be a whole human being. And he pointed out, he said, Jesus was a perfect mix of those. And so if we're emulating Christ, we need to be moving toward the middle and balancing these. So I, as an introvert, have to learn, I mean, I'm a priest, so I, I don't have a choice. I have to learn the world of extroversion. I've told you, I, before every sermon, there's a side of me that says, run now. <laughs> I really want to go because it, it wears me out. And, and Debbie, does he have to rehash the whole day when he gets home after Sunday? No, he doesn't, but that's unusual. You're more of a balance than we thought. <laughs> I, I've, I've joked with you, some of you about, about uh, taking the liturgical nap. Those are introverts who do that. We have to take the liturgical nap when we get home because we're worn out. My so, great pain and joy is the leading up the run and the thinking you've got now. All the humanity that comes Okay, that's, yeah, that sounds a little more introverted. Uh, the intuitive has to learn details and how to work with details, and the sensing person has to learn how the realm of ideas. The feeling person, we already talked about this, and the judging person has to learn to be spontaneous, and the, and the perceptive personality learns that needs to learn to get things done. What I there's another part to this story that that was when we learned this, we were had been married five years, and. In marriage counseling, there are what I call crisis periods. The first one is five to eight years. That's when people get in trouble. Notice when Hollywood, when they have divorces, look at the time they get five to eight years almost every time. Almost every time. And then seven years is. See, it's right inside the eight. Yeah, that's right. So, so in any case, here we, we had this, we were about at that point when I learned this. And I, we have a good relationship, so I always thought, I mean, she puts up with me for 42 years, we have a good relationship. So anyway, I always thought that it was because we had so much in common. You know, we both took our Christianity seriously. We were both military brats. We both were middle children. We both moved around a lot. So, ah, we, that's all we have in common. And then I found out that she is an extroverted, sensing, feeling, judging personality. And they said, when we learned this from a secular model, that the couples that get in trouble have less in common. And I thought, oh my God, we're in the first crisis period, and, and I find out that we don't have anything in common after all. It was frightening. So then I thought, oh, I better get on the ball. I'm really going to have to learn this balance thing if I want to keep my marriage. Uh, fortunately, she, she's, she understands that too. And we learn to teach each other. And that's one of the things about the whole antinomic quality of marriage is that because we're different, we can really learn. I've got this model here in my life every day. T 
teaching me an example, a Christ-like example of what wholeness means, antinomic wholeness. Thank God for that. Now, the point I'm making is one of the things we learn in this, this, this is an antinomic model, whether we know it. One of the things we learn is that we can identify some of where we need to go as individuals. What is your opposite? I guarantee you, Christ wants us. And if we're serious, he's going to lead us into these things. Probably why he led me to become a priest. So I'd have to learn this because I'd be hiding out in a hole somewhere. Those desert monks, let me tell you, that spirituality is very appealing. <laughs> very appealing. Grace wouldn't agree with me, but uh, <clears throat> she'd probably be out there with me trying to make sure I did everything right. So, so in any case, <clears throat> I, I, I've learned that the antinomic, it, it defines, the antinomic pursuit is a part of Christian discipleship. Uh, and we have to learn these things. The devil strives to keep us from being whole. He does not want us to be complete. That's why he, he gets us to just be single, single, one-sided. The church shows us the way to wholeness. This is the way. Walk therein, Jeremiah said. I just remembered the other thing I wanted to tell you. It has to do with Jeremiah, so let me forget. We need to figure out where we are going or where we are and where we're going and who we are. You know, it's sort of like one of the things the church teaches us, we need to look at ourselves and find out where we're lacking. This is why self-examination is so important in confession. It's owning up, it's identifying and owning up to who we are because that's the starting point of moving toward wholeness. And the wholeness will be antinomic. We need to remain as we are is to be incomplete and this will nag at us and eat us alive and nothing will stop it from eating at us. So alcohol or drugs or materialism or football games or whatever, it's not going to take it away. Only God will take it away and balance, antinomic balance. The next two times, and we won't be meeting next week, but in two weeks, I'm going to address two aspects of doing for those of you who are SJ personalities and have to do something, I'm going to give you those. So, but just remember that whatever we do, it's attitudes and actions. So we're going to do a little bit of both. And in one of those lessons, I'm going to talk about the four stages of sin. This is very prevalent in the church throughout the centuries, the four stages of sin. And when we understand the stages of a sinful action, we can actually begin to undermine sin in our own lives. That's a very S stuff, doing actions. And the other one is the three periods of discipleship. Because the road, the Christian discipleship, our entire journeys, each of our entire journeys and the little events in our journeys have three qualities about them. And if we can identify them, we can force our way through some of them. Because the middle one is always the hardest. We need to know it's a reality. That's an idea but it also shows us what to do. And we'll talk about that some. I would end then with one simple line from St. Sophronia of Essex. When I am in him, then I am. Keep that in mind. When I am in him, then I am. So simple and yet so profound. And it rings of antinomic truth. Anyway, 
end of lesson. I'm worn out. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I was going to tell you about Jeremiah, um, but where's that program? Yeah, I don't know, though, if you all want to listen to one of my diatribes about Jeremiah. or <laughs> Maybe you do, I don't know. Maybe you're gluttons for punishment. I, uh, well, when you understand covenant, and I mentioned this some when we were talking about creation, but when one understands covenant in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament, for example, we tend to think of Old Testament covenant, New Testament covenant, never the twain shall meet. And that's a wrong example. If you look at the concept of covenant, it has a number of different phases in it. And the first one was with Adam, and then with Noah, the Noahide covenant. Then with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. Then with Moses, the Mosaic covenant. Then with Christ, God incarnate. When we talk about covenant, it's all those together. All of those. So the mistake that rabbinic scholars made was thinking of the Mosaic covenant as covenant and nothing else. And yet, if you look at Luke's gospel... The genealogy of Christ extends back to Adam. In Matthew, it extends back to Abraham. In Hebrews, the writer refers to the priesthood as extending back to Abraham's time. They refer to the covenant as a whole. Christians refer to the covenant as a whole. And in Judaism, referred to only the mosaic aspect of the covenant. We need to understand that. That's got sort of an eternal quality view to it. Well, as we were listening to that this morning, Jeremiah, of course, is the one who mentioned that there is to be a new covenant. Actually, I, I've argued this in the past, but in Hebrew, the word new can mean renewed. Or like the new moon is not really the new moon. It's the renewed moon. You can even use that word. Anyway, as we were, re we were listening to the lesson this morning, Let's see where I can. If I got to, you know, there's a lesson. I don't want to read you the whole thing. Uh, well, therefore, this is from Jeremiah in, in, in Matins. Therefore, behold, the day, days come, saith the Lord, that they shall no more say, the Lord liveth who brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. What is that? That's in reference to the events of the Mosaic Covenant. But the Lord liveth which brought up, us brought up and which, the seed, which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country. Where did they come from the out, north country? Who came out of the north country? Abraham. Jeremiah is telling them long before that this greater covenant is coming, something greater and more wonderful. And, and if one does not understand the, sort of the antinomic quality of the understanding of covenant, if he thinks of only one part, he's going to miss that or misread it. Good New Testament gospel, bad Old Testament, not the teaching of the church. And why is it the teaching of the church? Because they want us to be whole so that we can see the vision of God and enter into it. Anyway, that's, that's what that was all about.
So, so while I was busy pontificating out there, I was busy offering my thoughts. <laughs> so, I, I'm sorry, I try not to do that, you know. Because if, if you look over at me and I'm just, <laughs> no telling what it'll do to set you off. You know. I was just trying to enter into where you were. Oh, okay. Anyway, God bless all. See you next time. <clears throat>